If you travel a lot for work or for a vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Side Hustle Show 291, email, ebooks, platforms, and conferences. It's time for another edition of 20 Questions with Nick. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because hustle never slumps special solo show for you today. It's time for another round of 20 questions with Nick diving into the listener mailbag to see what kind of goodies we can pull out. As usual, lots of fun and challenging questions. And as is customary on these episodes, I've selected 20 to run through today for your benefit and listening pleasure. This is the sixth installment of the series, so notes and links are at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A6. Of course, if you have a question, feel free to send it over to nick at sidehustlenation.com. I don't want to guarantee an email response, though I will do my best. The other place to ask is the free Side Hustle Nation community on Facebook, where you can tap into the wisdom of more than 9,000 fellow side hustlers and entrepreneurs. But beware, you just might be featured in the next round of 20 questions. Ready? Let's do it. Question number one comes from Andrew, and it's the motivation question. He says, I can get a project started, but for some reason, I never complete it. How do you stay motivated? Well, Andrew, this is something that I've been wrestling with a little bit lately. Kind of the frustrating realization that there's always more to do. In a way, I guess it's a good thing because you never have to worry about being bored, but I agree, it can be demotivating. So what works for me on the motivation front? three things. Number one is seeing results, no matter how small. Like I still remember my first affiliate sales, my first book sales on Amazon, my first paint job sales, like going door to door, my first freelance sales. Like results really breed motivation and motivation breeds action and action breeds more results. Kind of turns into a virtuous circle on that front. So results would be number one, uh, no matter how small. Number two would be, you know, positive feedback, or in my case, kind of thank you notes or testimonials from listeners and readers. That really helps keep me going. And number three would be you know, learning to love the journey, or as a recent guest put it, the process is the result. I've got a, an essay on the site called The Journey is the Destination, something that I'm still working on a little bit, but those three things have been helpful for me on the motivation side. Now, how do you go, how do you know when it's time to abandon a project? I think the answer is when you come to dread the work, it's time to let it go. But how do you stay motivated? Let me know in the comments, open to suggestion, open to a conversation on that one for sure. Question two is from Greg. Greg asks, are eBooks still a good side hustle? So Greg, the people I see doing best with self-publishing are either going after the portfolio model of writing lots of books. I think of the Steve Scotts of the world, who's been a guest on the show, or they're the people who have a business behind the book and use the book as more of a low-priced introductory offer. These are the Tony Robbins, the Jeff Walkers, the Ryan Levesque of the world. This actually seems 
a lot more common and perhaps more profitable with less work than constantly pumping out new books. The other alternative to think about is cutting Amazon out of the picture entirely and selling your ebook on your own site. Here's where I think there's been the biggest market shift over the last five to 10 years. And maybe this is in response to Kindle pricing, or maybe this is just a natural evolution of things, but trying to sell a high priced ebook like $50 or more on your own site, that seems really hard to do right now. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, super common. Now I don't see it as much. What I see people doing instead is taking the content from that ebook and branding it as a course, calling it a course. It could even be a text-based course, but doing so allows you to charge more because there's more perceived value in a course than there is in a book, and it saves you the trouble of having to worry about creating videos. In fact, a couple of the courses I took last year were entirely text-based, and both of those had price points at $200 and up. So that's kind of where I see the opportunity in the ebook world, either the, the Amazon portfolio model, the business behind the book model, or the turn your content into a course model. Question three is from Jenny, who asks, I'm an innate side hustler. I currently have seven different hustles. My question is, how do you manage a large, diverse workload? What is your physical organization system? How do you keep track of all these different projects and hustles? And how do you track their progress? So Jenny, seven different side hustles. As far as managing all the different buckets, it's hard to do without feeling overwhelmed. And maybe it's even impossible to do without feeling overwhelmed. And coming to grips is never really something, in, like I talked about in question one, coming to grips with never really being done is uh, something I'm working on this year. Now, in theory, you could think like a CEO overseeing a company with seven different divisions, and that's a skill set to learn. There's going to be some overlap between departments, so you might think about the ones you're neglecting, and you're probably neglecting those for a reason. Either they're not as exciting to work on, or you don't foresee an immediate return, or they're just hard to get off the ground. It's not necessarily cutting them off, just I'm going to focus somewhere else at the moment. So for me, I try and track projects and experiments in Google Docs or Google Sheets, with task lists, next steps, team members, results, stuff like that. Others on the show have recommended tools like Asana or Trello. I basically use pen and paper and Google Calendar to tell me my priorities and try and stick with no more than three priorities per day. If I get those done, it's a great day. But trying to juggle seven projects at once is really tough. So I'd be looking at opportunities to delegate or automate the stuff that doesn't require your direct involvement. A lot of my projects are short-term, or I try and set them up to be relatively passive later on, and not sure if yours are the same, but that's kind of how I go about it. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you travel a lot for work or for a vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time 
and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Question four is from Sheila. This was an email I got. She says, I hope that you don't mind me asking in the most direct terms I can think of, but what's in it for you? How do you profit from sharing information that obviously took you a long time to compile and perfect, not to mention the cost of your valuable time? So Sheila, definitely no offense taken. I think it's actually pretty smart to ask those questions. My business today has three main revenue streams. The first one you just heard, it's sponsorships on the podcast. The second is affiliate offers on Side Hustle Nation. And the third leg of that stool is my own side hustle experiments. You know, the freelancing stuff, the e-commerce stuff, the self-publishing, you know, other websites that I still maintain, like the merch by Amazon stuff. All of that kind of falls under that third bucket. For question five, Pamela asks, would you happen to know of any hustles that pay 40 grand a year working 10 hours a week? Well, Pamela, let's do some math on that. 10 hours a week for, say, 50 working weeks a year for the sake of round numbers and a little bit of vacation. That's 500 hours. 40 grand divided by 500 hours is 80 bucks an hour. I think there are lots of skills and professions that command that kind of rate. Though if you go with the straight freelancing route, one thing to keep in mind is you're probably going to want to charge more than $80 an hour as a sticker price to account for the non-billable hours that you're going to have inevitably, marketing time, administrative time, stuff like that. Now, depending on where you're starting from, it might make more sense to look at your current effective hourly rate or your EHR, which is something that Rosemary Groner has touched on on this podcast and James Schramko talks about in his book, Work Less, Make More. If you ever measured that, either for your day job or your side hustle, to arrive at that number, it's just your profit divided by the hours you work to earn it. Once you have that as a baseline, you can start to focus on the higher EHR, higher effective hourly rate tasks, and eliminate or delegate the rest. Now, as far as specific hustles go, I think you could get there with a high-end consulting or freelancing business. I think you could do it with an e-commerce option. I think you could even do it with a blogging or online course model after a ramp-up period. But pick something that you know you can help people with, a problem that you know you can help solve, and then go find a way to get paid for that. Question six is from Amy. She says, I'm currently drafting a study guide on how to write essays at university. The problem is I've got zero social media presence or blogging experience. Should I focus on the book first and get it out and then build a blog to promote it or try and build a following online and then launch the book at a later date? A classic chicken or the egg situation here, Amy. Of course, it's going to be easier to launch if you had an audience to sell to, but which project you tackle first, I think depends on your goals for the book. As you know, simply having a book is a major authority builder, especially if you're targeting universities or their faculty for, you know, speaking or consulting gigs. If you've already got the momentum for the book, I'd probably aim to finish that first because, you know, that's a clear finish line versus building a following online. It's like such a nebulous thing. It's never really done, if that makes sense. It's probably what I do. If you're already two thirds of the way done with the book, I'd get that out there first and see where that takes you. Question seven comes from Julie. She asks, I have an Instagram account currently. Is this going to suffice for starting a blog? 
Short answer, no. A social media presence can be a good place to start and can definitely supplement your own site, but I think it's always going to be best to build on a platform that you own and control. You never know when Instagram might change an algorithm and poof, your followers can't find you anymore. We've seen it with Facebook. We've seen it with you know a ton of different platforms. So build on a house that you can own or build on land that you can own, probably a best practice going forward. Obviously, social media is going to supplement that, but that's how I go about it. For question eight, Zoe asks, what software do you use to build landing pages? So I use lead pages most of the time, but there's a bunch of tools out there. One option would be just to, you know, find a free WordPress theme that looks similar and you can customize that if that's kind of like, if you just need something for your homepage or a really simple website. There's also Thrive Architect, which I've heard really good things about. Elementor, which I believe has a free version and Beaver Builder, which actually I'm using on Side Hustle Nation or used with the recent redesign or last year's redesign, I should say. Beaver Builder is paid and Thrive is paid, but uh, those are pretty cool tools. Not quite drag and drop, but much easier than just trying to like custom code WordPress. I'll link those up for you in the show notes at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A6. Chuck in question number nine asks, what would you say are the top two or three platforms to make side hustle and beyond type of money today? Well, Chuck, it probably depends on what's got you most excited, but I would say by far the most popular is Amazon, or by far the biggest is Amazon. Just under that umbrella, you've got opportunities like FBA, Fulfillment by Amazon. You could go the retail arbitrage route, the private label route, the wholesale route, lots of stuff just in the e-commerce space on Amazon. You have merch by Amazon, you know, print-on-demand t-shirts, and they're expanding into other categories. You've got Kindle Publishing, and then kind of subcategories of that. You've got paperbacks through CreateSpace and audiobooks through ACX or uh, Audible. And then you've got Amazon Associates. You've got their affiliate marketing program. So lots of different stuff under the Amazon brand. Lots of different ways to profit from what those crazy folks in Seattle are building. Question 10 is from Chris. He asks, how do you track your side hustle spending and earning? I just have one bank account and I'm tagging things in Mint, but that can be a little bit hard to see how much I'm making every month. Well, Chris, I highly recommend setting up a separate business checking account. So why open a business bank account? For that very reason, you can easily separate your business and personal finances. It gives you a dedicated account to deposit your earnings and then you pay your expenses out of that account. And even if you're operating as a sole proprietor, maintaining separate accounts is a smart habit to get into. And I think it's going to make your life a lot simpler come you know, end of the month reporting and especially come tax time. So what happened for me, I just went into the same branch where I already had my personal checking account and asked if I could open a business account. It's a really simple process. The account is free. Make sure yours is too. Now, here's the thing in the US at least, you're probably going to need an EIN to open a business bank account. That's an employer identification number. And yes, you can get one. Even if you have zero employees, it's free to do. And you can actually apply online, I think, at irs.gov. I'll link that up in the show notes for you as well. As far as my accounting system, it's a little bit convoluted today between PayPal and FreshBooks and Excel. But really, you know, come the end of the year, the Excel sheet is kind of like the master key. One Excel sheet to rule them all. Question 11 is from Steven. He says, do I create my own website to sell handy arts and crafts products or do I sell the products on an established market online? And Steven, my vote, especially starting out, is to go to an established market. In this case, something like Etsy comes to mind. This is going to help you validate demand before you invest the time and energy and money in building your own site. I've bought art and jewelry there that I probably otherwise never would have found because Etsy's built the marketplace of buyers and sellers. And it's relatively straightforward to set up shop on their platform. 
if you want to learn more about building a business on Etsy, definitely check out my chat with Cara Lamarado. That's episode 192. She's built a really cool side hustle selling wine-themed wedding decor. How about a niche on Etsy? And she's used that as a jumping off point for other ventures like her wedding planning podcast. Question 12 is from Ryan, who asks, how do you organize your various email accounts? I'm sure you receive communication from several different avenues, and I want to know if you funnel them into one admin email or not, and if so, what service do you use? So for me, Ryan, everything from all the different domains and emails gets forwarded into my master Gmail account. Under settings and then accounts and import, you can set up a similar system. Actually, you've got to set up forwarding with your web host, but in Gmail, once that's set up, I can reply with whatever email address that message was sent to. In addition to that, I've got a bunch of filters set up to route specific types of messages to certain folders, mostly for stuff that I don't need to see unless I'm looking for it, but I don't want to fully unsubscribe from. Those filters are based you know, on subject line templates or who the sender is. The other tool that I'm using is SaneBox, which I started using last year when they reached out about sponsoring the show, and I actually love it. Its algorithms are really, really smart, almost scary smart, and it saves me a ton of time dealing with email that, you know, comes in every day, but it's just not that important. No action necessary email. Still, email is its a bit of a burden. I'd be lying if I didn't admit that. So I'm exploring some new avenues to help me get out of the inbox a little bit. But old habits die hard. Curious to hear if you got a system that you like. You know, this one works for me. It's a little bit of a patchwork system, but curious to hear what you think. Let me know. SideHustleNation.com slash Q&A6. Question 13 comes from Tess. She says, I've gotten a lot of five-star reviews on Udemy and a couple four-star reviews, but with 100% ratings in all categories. I'm not sure why people are hesitant to give a full five stars, but I remember you saying I could ask them to change the review. My question is, how do I tactfully phrase that question? I've tried writing a response and having trouble coming up with something that doesn't sound super needy or aggressive. In tests, we're splitting hairs here between four and five stars. I honestly wouldn't stress about it. I think you're better off creating the next course or doing some more marketing. I think you've got the social proof that you need already, so I probably wouldn't worry about that. Question 14 comes from Scott. Scott asks, is ClickBank a scam? I'm on YouTube here, and there are thousands of videos from people who claim they can show you how to make money with ClickBank. All of those videos tell stories that seem too good to be true. What do you think? So... Scott, ClickBank isn't a scam, but I can see how it might appear that way. Compared with other affiliate networks, like ShareASale or Rakuten, Linkshare or Commission Junction, you're not going to see the recognizable brand names like Zappos or Udemy or Gap because ClickBank really specializes in digital products and software. And some offers are going to be more valuable than others. For example, I actually was an affiliate on ClickBank for Spencer Hawes' Longtail Pro software, for John Corcoran's Connecting with Influencers course. It really, affiliate marketing is just connecting your audience with other products and services that can help them. And ClickBank is just one potential source for those products. Just you know, make sure to test it out yourself. Make sure this is something you're comfortable recommending, if that makes sense. Question 15 is from Jessica, who asks, how do you handle friend requests from your side hustle page or your side hustle group? I'm suddenly getting friend requests from strangers to my personal Facebook page. Well, Jessica, this is actually a really good sign that people want to connect with you. But I'm with you. It's a little weird when you're first starting out. Facebook, for me, at least started out as a place to see what my real life friends were up to. And it still does that. It's just that as my businesses have grown and evolved, the majority of those friends aren't the people I knew in high school and college, but they're people that I've connected with in some way through business, either in real life or online. 
So to deal with this, I kind of use a combination of different strategies. And again, curious to hear what other people do faced with a similar situation. The first thing is to accept those friend requests, but unfollow them, especially if they're total strangers, and add them to a separate friends list. Mine is seriously called strangers. And when you post, you can choose in the settings, you know, who can see your stuff. So that's one way to do it. The second thing that I do is if you run a group, especially a big group or a growing one, it might make sense to accept friend requests from your members. And why is that? The reason is because the Facebook group notification settings look something like this. You can choose to see all posts from the group. You can choose to see highlights, which is, you know, some algorithmic generated thing that Facebook does. You can choose to see your friends' posts, or you can just turn notifications off. And what I found is that choosing to see all posts can be overwhelming. And turning notifications off is like, why even join the group? So a lot of people, myself included, will pick something in the middle. And that's like, you know, when your friends post. So if they're friends with you, the moderator, and you're posting often in your group and you want people to see it, that then it might make sense to become friends with the people in your group, just to allow for more visibility. And the other thing, the other strategy that you might want to employ is Facebook has a setting that you can allow followers. And if you make certain posts public, they'll be able to see those. But if you make other posts set to, you know, friends only, they won't be able to see those. So I do that sometimes and actually learned about public posting the hard way when I posted a book launch I had going on and friends started sharing that post, which was like, awesome. Thank you for doing that. Totally unexpected. And I got these notifications from Facebook that, oh, so-and-so shared your post, but don't worry. Only your friends are going to be able to see it due to the original privacy settings you had set. And I was like, no, no, no. This is one that actually made sense to spread far and wide. So I learned about public posts the hard way. For question 16, Joe asks, what plugin or application are you using to list all of your podcasts on your blog? I really like how every episode is in one place and searchable. So this is under the podcast tab on SideHustleNation.com. And Joe, that is the TablePress plugin for WordPress. The downside to it is it's not automatic. So every Thursday morning, I'm going in and adding the new episode to the top of that chart, to the top of that list. So I'm actually looking for ways to improve that page and uh, definitely open to suggestions. If anybody else is doing an amazing job with podcast archives, especially those shows that have over 200 episodes, I'd love to see it. One thing that I'm considering doing is creating a handful of different column playlists to help people get started instead of looking at the monster list and wondering, you know, what to listen to first. It could be something like, okay, here's the freelancing mixtape or the blogging mixtape or the low tech, low startup cost side hustles and just pulling the best episodes under those categories. So curious to hear what you think. Would that be helpful? I'll probably play around with that and see if that makes any impact. Question 17 comes from Matt who asks, if you had the opportunity to sit down with a very successful local business person and pick their brain, what sort of questions would you ask? Oh, Matt, truth be told, I'm awful at these types of questions. <laughs> I feel like there's this expectation to come up with something, you know, really clever or profound. Once you hear it, it's like, you know, this slow clap kind of moment. But to pull that magic question out of thin air, you know, isn't something that I'm great at. Instead, I'd probably try and approach it the same way I approach podcast interviews on this show with just a natural curiosity to figure out how they built the thing. You know, where'd you get the idea? What gave you the confidence to go for it? How'd you land your first customers? How'd you figure out your pricing? What went wrong? What would you do differently? What's next? I always like to ask what's next because it seems like successful people are always looking toward the future and they've got their sights, you know, set on the next thing. This was actually a question from the Facebook group, sidehustlenation.com slash FB, if you want to jump in there. A couple honorable mentions in the Facebook thread for this question. Scott asked, you know, what's the best advice they ever received? I like that question. And then Mark asked, what's the biggest problem you're facing in your business right now? I think that's a really smart one to open up 
the conversation and, you know, hopefully find an angle where you might be able to help. I think that was a really smart one too. What's the biggest problem you're facing in your business right now? Question 18 is from Nicole. She asks, is FinCon worth it? I've been listening to Side Hustle Nation for a while now and keep hearing about FinCon, so I decided to look it up. Turns out it's in my hometown of Orlando. Just wondering, as I'm just starting my side hustle journey, if that's a worthwhile investment. So Nicole, first about FinCon, and then let me address the broader question about conferences in general. FinCon, which started out as the Financial Bloggers Conference, is probably my favorite event of the year. I never really considered myself a personal finance blogger, but I can trace big gains in my business after each event. Incredibly smart people go, and it's a very welcoming and very open community. At least that's what I found. I've been each of the last three years, and I'll be in Orlando for FinCon 18 as well. Now, it's hard to say how relevant it's going to be for your work or for your business, and I don't know how closely you're related to the finance space, but since you're a local, I think it would be a very reasonable investment to make if for no other reason than to spend a few days thinking about your business, you know, like-minded people and getting inspired to take action. Now, on the broader conference question, are conferences worth it? They're expensive between travel and hotel and potentially time off work and meals and the event registration. You could be looking at a thousand or two thousand bucks easily. And that's not counting the opportunity cost of stepping out of your business for a few days. But I've probably been to 20 conferences over the last 10 years, and it's hard to think of one that wasn't worth it. It's an investment in yourself, in your business. And sure, there have been some that have better ROIs than others, but there are a couple components I think are really important when you're attending or thinking about attending conferences. The first is the content. Everybody is going to tell you, don't go to the conference for the content. But here's the thing. If you were sitting at home, you would never find the time to dedicate two or three straight days to consume content to improve your business. It just doesn't happen. I find while I'm sitting in the educational sessions at conferences, I'm constantly taking notes and sparking new ideas. I can't wait to get back and implement when I get home. Some of these, you know, have had an immediate positive impact on the bottom line. The second thing is the networking, basically surrounding yourself with people on a similar path with similar businesses or similar goals. That's really powerful, but it actually doesn't happen automatically when you show up at a conference, especially big events. You have to proactively figure out ways to shrink the conference down to a more manageable size. This is one thing that stood out to me at university orientation. I went to University of Washington, Go Huskies, which has an undergraduate enrollment of like 30,000 people. My orientation guide, sensing us, you know, wide-eyed freshmen, you know, that we were pretty overwhelmed, he explained, look, it's really not that big once you find ways to shrink it through social groups, clubs, fraternities, sports teams, student councils, and stuff like that. I think the same thing is true at conferences, especially the big ones. There are always little side meetups and events going on, and you can even organize your own. So make sure to follow the conference hashtag and the social media accounts, because that's often where you're going to hear about those, or if there are specific people attending that you want to meet, see if they're hosting anything, or you can reach out directly to set up a quick coffee meeting or chat in the hallway. But before each event, I make an effort to map out my schedule and see who else is going to be there and put a time on the calendar to connect. If you leave it to chance, it might not happen. And when I do that, that's when I feel like it was a more productive or more worthwhile event. And if your budget is really tight, most of the conferences I've attended actually have scholarship opportunities too. And I've gotten a few free, quote, media passes in the past. So if you're running a blog, you probably, you might qualify as media. I've actually got a blog post on how to save on conferences. I'll link that up in the show notes for you at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A6. But be creative. I think you're going to find ways to get in the door without breaking the bank. 
Question 19 is from Karen. She says, WordPress is driving me crazy with updates and maintenance and spam comments, and I've been hacked a couple times. Since I'm not WordPress savvy, it's costing me a lot of time and money to keep sites that I barely use running. I'm thinking about switching to a drag and drop platform like Wix or Weebly. Pros and cons. So Karen, pros. Wix, Weebly, even Squarespace to a certain extent, easier to maintain and edit in a lot of ways. And for simple brochure style sites. I think either one of those builders can work. I mean, you buy a plan, you pick a template, you fill in the content. It's definitely easier than WordPress. The cons, these are not as robust or customizable. Like if you're building out a bigger site or you need some special plugin functionality, I think you're ultimately going to end up frustrated with Wix or Weebly. In fact, I was trying to build some site on GoDaddy. GoDaddy had a software called Website Tonight back in the day. I'm not sure if they still do, but I found it didn't support some feature that I needed. And I was really annoyed. I basically had to start over on WordPress. So they're great for little placeholder or portfolio sites, but not so great for larger projects. The other drawback is they're not as strong SEO-wise as WordPress is. And this may have changed, but when I last look at Wix, it was hiding most of your internal pages behind some Ajax or JavaScript or something like that, which made it much harder for search engines to index. And again, that may have changed. But on the getting hacked front, This is appropriate timing because last month just had a bunch of my smaller sites get hacked, including my wife's site for her photography business. They were all, they were redirecting to some spam site that was trying to sell virus removal. I just felt violated, you know, like somebody broke into your house. And maybe the house analogy is appropriate because in a lot of ways, these were neglected properties. It's like leaving a house abandoned and unlocked for years and expecting, you know, to come back and find it in perfect condition. Software doesn't work like that. And all those little plugin updates, theme updates, WordPress core updates that we ignored or didn't even see to ignore because we just straight up didn't log in, you know, those had some important bug fixes and security updates. So what we do to get back online and try and prevent this from happening again, a few different things. First of all, of course, change all the passwords, the hosting account, the WordPress access, and the FTP accounts. We did some malware cleanup. I used a combination of services from WP Fixit was one service that we used and actually found a seller on Fiverr to help remove the malware. Next, we installed a backup plugin. One of the mistakes that we had made on these sites was we didn't have backups. So I like Updraft. It's a WordPress plugin for backups. And then I set the sites to backup to Dropbox. The reason I like having a backup in the cloud and not on the same server is just for that extra layer of security. I want to be in control of that backup and not have that be on the same box as the site itself. And it's free. The plugin is, is free. The next thing that we did was install a security plugin and actually the malware cleanup services installed WordFence and I think another plugin called Shield, which put some firewall protections in place because, you know, out of the box, WordPress maybe has got some holes in it. So it's definitely worthwhile checking out some either WordFence or Shield or I think all-in-one WordPress security is another one that I've used in the past. And finally, we set calendar reminders to go in every month and update the plugins and themes as necessary to hopefully plug those holes and keep the sites secure. And finally, to bring us home, Anthony in question 20 says, Bulletproof Coffee, are you a fan? Anthony, I am a fan. Bulletproof coffee, if you're not familiar, is basically butter coffee, which sounds weird if you've never tried it. But I've been drinking this more and more lately in an effort to do a couple of things. Number one, the intermittent fasting, like trying not to eat first thing in the morning or, you know, if you can not eat between like seven at night or 11 in the morning or something like supposedly that's better for you. The second reason is to introduce more good fats into my diet. I guess this is more in line with the keto or the bulletproof diet, neither of which I follow super strictly. I 
don't buy Dave Asprey's brand of coffee. Dave Asprey's the the inventor of Bulletproof Coffee, or at least the popularizer of Bulletproof Coffee from Bulletproof.com. By the way, interesting business that started, it started as a blog, basically. Now he's got this empire. So I don't buy his brand of clean coffee, you know, supposedly toxin-free coffee from, you know, high altitude organic Central American farms or something. But I do use grass-fed butter and I do use his official brand of, you know, quote, brain octane MCT oil, sometimes add cinnamon for flavor and some collagen for protein. I used to make this with just vanilla protein powder and coconut oil. It was super good, but I like just the, I like the butter and MCT oil version as well. MCT oil is flavorless. It's definitely an interesting meal replacement. I don't know if I feel any smarter or more alert cognitively, which I think is one of the proclaimed benefits of the brain octane MCT oil. But I do know that it keeps me from getting hungry until noon on most days. What do you think? You know, is this just another fad thing or is there some merit to bulletproof coffee specifically or, you know, the bulletproof diet in general? Let me know what you think in the comments for this episode. Again, sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A6. That's it for me. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen, and I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show. I'll see you then. Hustle on. Thanks for listening to The Side Hustle Show at www.sidehustlenation.com.